Welcome to the Talking Immigration Podcast. Immigration is a complex issue. Most of us have strong emotions, but don't actually know the details of how immigration actually works. In this podcast, I interview immigration experts to teach us about the types of immigration, limits, costs, enforcement, and more. I'm Katarina, your host. Let's talk immigration. Today we are talking with Heidi Serdneka, an immigration attorney with Las Americas Immigrant Advocacy Center based in El Paso, Texas. Thank you so much for being with us, Heidi, and welcome to the show. Will you tell us a little bit about your experience working in immigration? Sure, happy to. Thanks so much for having me. I work at Las Americas Immigrant Advocacy Center in El Paso, Texas, which is an immigration rights center right on the border. And we represent people that are seeking asylum, people that are seeking other forms of defense and legal advocacy for immigration-related cases. I work specifically with people that are seeking asylum. Um, I'm a Marinole missioner. And before this, I did some work actually with refugees in Kenya. And I've done a lot of work with people in situations of migration for almost 20 years in Brazil. So we've learned in previous episodes that there are basically four main ways to come to stay in the U.S. legally. You either have to have immediate family who are citizens or permanent residents here. An employer agrees to sponsor you for a specific job. If you're from a country with less than 7% immigration, you can win a visa lottery. Or you can ask to come here by seeking asylum from your place of origin. So I'd like to start with some definitions. Can you tell us on a really basic and maybe legal level, what exactly is asylum? Sure. Um, Asylum is a protection granted to people from other countries, foreign nationals, who are seeking protection from the United States or other countries, in our case from the United States, because they've been persecuted in their country at home. So in the U.S., the way our asylum law works, you either have to already be in the U.S. or you have to be arriving at a border in order to ask for asylum. You have to claim persecution. And so we have to remember that it's your right to seek asylum. It might not be granted, right? So you you ask for asylum, and that's a person who is unable or unwilling to return to your country of origin because you can't be protected in that country. And the law is very specific. So you have to prove that you've been persecuted because of your political opinion, your race, your religion, your nationality, or because you're a member of this category called a particular social group, which is very clear parameters of how we define it, but that helps because then there are people that might be victims of female genital mutilation, for example, or people that might be gender related, or it might might be somebody who's LGBTQ. And so they, if they fit the parameters of that, can also qualify for asylum, even though that isn't political or religious or race or nationality. So that's kind of, that's the person who gets qualified for asylum in this country. Now, what happens is you ask for asylum and then you have to go through a whole process through the U.S. immigration system to prove that you actually fit all of that. And and of course, there's all sorts of legal rules and systems for how you prove what is persecution, how you prove that you were persecuted, how you prove that it wasn't just my neighbor who hates me, but 
Um, there has to be either state involvement or the government has to be unwilling or unable to protect you. Or you can prove that you have a well, what's called well-founded fear, which is also a legal term, of being persecuted in the future. So maybe I got threatened in the past, but it's not enough for a judge to say that's persecution. But I can prove that if I go back, my life is at risk or my freedom is at risk or my freedom to practice religion is at risk for example. So are those people seeking asylum, are those the same as refugees? Are the terms used interchangeably? Usually we use refugee for a person who's been granted asylum in some way or been granted status. For example, when you think of the people I met in Kenya who were refugees, they were already recognized by either representatives of the Kenyan government or the United Nations as people that show that they are unable or unwilling to return to their country because they can't be protected because of one of those five categories. So when you're an asylum seeker, you're not technically a refugee yet. You're in the process of seeking status to become a refugee, seeking asylum, but technically as far as asylum law, you're not a refugee. Now, if we look at just a dictionary definition of refugee, I'm sure that we could find a dictionary definition that says you're a person that fled from your, your place, maybe it's your city to another. We also talk about displaced persons within a country. So you could be a refugee in your own country, but um, generally the dictionary would just say it's somebody who has had to leave their home, not by choice, but because of, by force. You could be an economic refugee. You could be a climate refugee, for example. Asylum doesn't contemplate that. Asylum, you can't get asylum if you're fleeing drought or fleeing poverty. Can you give us a little bit of history? When did the U.S. begin begin to welcome asylum seekers? Have we always had that kind of practice? When and why did that become a part of immigration law? Probably we've always had that kind of practice back to when people first started coming to the United States. But legally, the whole idea of asylum started after World War II. The United Nations was founded. And after World War II, the United Nations came together and said, there's so many people that were fleeing the Nazi regime in Germany and in Europe um, and ran to other countries. And we need some kind of system to protect them, to identify them and protect them. And so in 1951, the UN came together and adopted what's called a convention for the protection of refugees. A convention in the UN is as good as law. You know, the United Nations has all sorts of documents. There's declarations, there's resolutions. Some of them are guiding principles. The um, United Nations standard minimum rules for the treatment of people in prison, those are best principles. Those are good ideas that we should live up to, but they don't have the power of law. A convention does. A convention has the power of law because it's, it's passed in the UN and each country then signs it and then they take it back to their home and they ratify it. So the UN convention has force of law. The U.S. did not ratify the 1951 U.N. Convention. However, that was specifically for people fleeing the Nazi regime. In 1967, the U.N. looked again and said, there are people fleeing across the planet, and they're fleeing for different reasons, and they're fleeing different things. And so this process, the system we came up with, actually serves all of them. So the U.N. in 1967 basically did an addendum, it's called a protocol, to the convention and said, everything we said about 
asylum being for people that are fleeing their country of origin for one of these five reasons that I stated, um, and they can't return home, unwilling or unable, we're going to say that that can apply to anybody who's fleeing from their country of origin. And so that also had to get adopted, had to get signed by countries, had to get ratified. And that protocol was ratified in the U.S. Congress. So that 1967 protocol for the protection of refugees is binding law for us. We could take the government to court for not respecting that. The other thing the UN does though, is the UN says, you know, we're trying to write a protocol or a convention that fits all these very diverse countries that come together and form the United Nations. So we recommend that you take this back to your home country and you write a law that more appropriately fits your country, a domestic law. And so the United States wrote the INA, the Immigration and Naturalization Act. That law, it's almost identical to the UN Convention because once we sign the convention, we can't write a national law that contradicts the convention. We can write a national law that is more ample, that's more protective, but we can't write a law that that contradicts it. So I would say really for the US, officially this whole system of asylum and asylum seekers began when we signed and ratified the 1967 protocol. So once somebody officially requests asylum, as you mentioned, they have to either already be in the U.S. or show up at a border or point of entry. What's involved with that request? And then who does that go to? Who makes those decisions? There's two ways it happens. One way, you might already be in the U.S. You might be in the U.S. undocumented. You might be in the U.S. on a visa. You know, if you're already in the U.S. and you realize something changed in your home country or you can't go home, you can ask for asylum from within the U.S. We call that affirmative because there's nobody saying to you, I'm going to deport you, right? The vast majority of asylum seekers are people that arrive. You have to be on U.S. soil to ask for asylum. So you can't come to Juarez, Mexico and wait over there or or call in. You have to physically be on U.S. soil to ask for asylum. And recently, the U.S. has closed more and more of the legal entries to the United States, the ports of entry, which is why many people who are desperate for protection and fled their countries at home end up crossing through the desert or over the wall or all sorts of other ways because they aren't able to actually ask for asylum at a port of entry. They used to be able to walk up to the border and say to an officer, I'm asking for asylum. They can't do that. I've had so many clients who said they literally will like cross the river or go over the wall. They'll sit down and wait for border patrol because they're not trying to sneak into the country. They're trying to get to someone so that they can ask for asylum. So I think that's really important because it's important that we understand first that you have to be on U.S. soil to ask for asylum. And second, that our country has made that much more difficult. And so people you don't leave your home, your language, your food, your family, your culture, and everything unless you're desperate in general. So people people are desperate. So to your question of how does someone begin the process? So they begin the process by asking for asylum. And then what'll happen is generally, because you have to be on US soil to do that, you've already entered the US without permission. Generally, there are some people that can come to a port of entry and ask for asylum and they can be allowed in. But you don't have a visa 
even if you come to the border right here at Juarez on the bridge, go through the, the border post and say, I'm asking for asylum, you still don't have a visa. So you're put in removal proceedings. You're put in proceedings where the end will either be that they'll say, okay, you actually fit and qualify for asylum and you we're going to grant you protection. And if not, basically what they're saying is you're in this country without permission. And so if we're not granting you protection, then we're going to deport you. I think there's so many misconceptions about how this happens. So just having a sense of what it's like from the beginning and going through what's involved in those steps is very useful. Once someone makes that request and they're put in this removal proceeding, what happens? How long does that typically take? Is is there a typical wait time? Not really. If you're detained, the government has the onus on the government to do that as quickly as possible. And detained means in a detention center? Or what does yes. that mean? Immigration. In effect, you're in jail. I mean, when you think about it, it's it's called civil detention because these people have not committed a crime. And they're being held to keep them from, I suppose, sneaking into the U.S. But in effect, one of my clients once said to me, you know, if I have to ask for permission to take a shower, I'm in jail. So you're, you are in a lockdown facility while you're pursuing your asylum case. The government has a responsibility because you're being deprived of your freedom to, to move that along as quickly as possible. However, despite that, um, those cases can last, I would say on average, they last about maybe six months. I've definitely had clients that have been a year before the judge decide in in a lockdown facility before the judge decides whether or not they qualify for asylum. And right now with COVID-19, what's happening is they might have a court hearing, but somebody in the barracks where they lived is positive for COVID-19. So the whole barracks gets quarantined and nobody goes to court. So we're seeing that take even longer. Some people are able, when they ask for asylum, they're able to be released and live in the United States while their case moves forward. They're still in removal proceedings. They still at the end will either be granted asylum or deported, but they don't have to be detained. There's all sorts of reasons that can happen and that that gets denied. But um, a lot of people are able to prove I have family, I have somewhere to go, I have special needs, and they're able to leave detention. If you are, for instance, living with your cousin in New Jersey while you're pursuing your case, the courts are so backlogged that that case could take a year, it could take two years before a decision is actually made. And do you have a right to a lawyer or is would some people try to send documentation of all that information necessary on their own? That's a really good question. You, you have a right to have a lawyer if you can provide it. In the United States, only criminal cases will the government provide a lawyer for you if you don't have one. And that's, again, because the value is on your right to freedom. And so if you're being deprived of your freedom, the government provides a lawyer if you can't afford one. In, in asylum, you have a right to have a lawyer, but you have to get it. So a lot of people, at least from what I see here in El Paso, the vast majority of people don't have lawyers because they can't afford lawyers. There's not a lot of places like Las Americas. We don't charge for our services to people that are in immigration detention seeking asylum, but there's very few of us and there's so many cases. So um, people have to put together a case. It's 
it's hard and you don't win a lot. In El Paso, the um, approximately 5% of all cases actually win asylum. And so if you think about the fact that you have a 95% chance of losing and you come from another country and another language and you're trying to understand a very complicated system in a Western foreign country and be able to convince a judge that you deserve asylum, that's a really steep challenge for people. They do sometimes, and if and if they're in detention, it's hard to contact their family in Guatemala or places like that to get evidence. But they do sometimes are able to, they'll write their family, their family might send evidence. And you can win asylum with no evidence if you are believable and if you can show that there's no way for you to get evidence. I had a client from Iran and we couldn't get any evidence from his country because of all the censoring. And so I had one thing and beyond that, the judge believed him just based on his testimony. Can we review what people are trying to prove again? So you mentioned you have to prove there's persecution because of your political beliefs, your race, your religion, your nationality, and or you're a member of some social group who is unprotected. Is that correct? That's correct. And so you have, so first you have to prove that you fit one of those five categories, right? Then you have to prove that's the reason for your persecution. Because let's say I'm indigenous, but the police pick on me because I love to drive fast, not because I'm indigenous. So if I get arrested and beat up because I drive too fast, I'm not going to be able to prove that I was arrested and persecuted because I'm indigenous. So it's not enough to be one of those categories. You have to be persecuted because of that category. What about something like gang violence? I feel like that's something you hear about so much as an issue in many countries, especially south of our border. Does that fit into these categories? In general, it does not. And my opinion, I think both gang violence and gender were excluded from those categories, even from the particular social group, because of fear that everybody would have a claim to asylum and too many people would win asylum. You can, however, sometimes manage to form this particular social group around something related to that. Let's say sometimes people have been able to prove that I'm a family member of somebody who testified against the gang, and so I'm threatened. Or I filed complaints against the gang, and so I'm part of a group that has the courage to stand against the gang and therefore I'm threatened. But simply being threatened or persecuted by the gang is not enough. Are there restrictions on the number of asylum seekers that we would allow in or restrictions based on country? So much of immigration, there are many restrictions by numerical limits, country limits. Does that apply also to this um, category of asylum seekers? No, there's no numerical limit. It's true, there are some, there are certain types of visas that only 10,000 a year are granted. Um, there's no numerical limit on asylum. It's just a very stringent process by which a judge decides and a person has to prove that they merit protection and they fit all of those regulations. Is there a fee to apply for asylum? Right now, there is no fee to apply for asylum the government, and I would say even the United Nations, recognizes that people that are arriving at the border of a country to ask for protection in general need to be able to ask for protection, and they can't be um, 
prohibited or inhibited by anything like a fee. However, there is a new regulation by the U.S. government that will go into effect that any person applying for asylum will have to pay a $50 fee. And while some people may think, some of us may think $50 sounds reasonable, um, most people arrive at the border with nothing. And those who are detained while they're seeking asylum continue to have nothing. And if they have a job inside the detention center are paid a dollar a day, which really doesn't even cover shampoo, personal effects, and any attempt to make phone calls to family while they're detained. Are there other fees that are included with that request for asylum? No, the only other fee would be if you are seeking any specific kind of government document and that document has no waiver. Um, But generally, somebody who is applying for asylum would not have other fees. However, if you're released from detention, because some people go through the whole asylum process in immigration detention, but if you're released from detention to pursue your asylum case, some people are released on, on bond, on parole, by ICE, and they can go stay with a family member or a sponsor while their case goes forward. Um, those cases slow down dramatically because the government recognizes that you're no longer in detention, and so it's not so urgent to complete the case as it would be if your liberty has been taken away from you. Those cases can take years because the courts are so backlogged. And so historically, the government allowed those people who were in asylum proceedings um, but not detained to apply for work permit with the understanding that if it takes a long time for your asylum case to go through, that's not your fault. That's our, our system's backlog. And you need to be able to eat and survive. So the regulation has been that if after you've turned in your official application form, after 180 days, you can apply for a work permit, which gives you legal authorization to work in this country. That regulation as of August 26th is going to change. And you're going to have to have 365 days after turning in your application form not after first arriving, but after turning in the application form, which is a few steps down the road in your process, 365 days that you'll have to wait to apply for a work permit. And there'll be a $550 fee for that work permit. And considering that you aren't allowed to work until you apply, um, that's a very hefty fee for someone who hasn't been permitted to legally work. And can families apply together, or is it simply on an individual basis? Families can apply together. So certainly we've had cases where maybe it's parents and children. They're all in one case. Spouses can be in the same case. If, in fact, they've suffered the same persecution, they can be in the same case. If a family member, if one person, for instance, I have a client from Uganda who won asylum, and she has four children. If you win asylum, you win the right to bring a spouse and children under the age of 21 into the United States. It's called derivative status. They derive asylum because you won. And of course, the idea was if you're being persecuted, odds are good that the people that are that close to you are also being persecuted. And also, I imagine, to keep the family together. So There's two ways. One, you could prove that you all suffered the same persecution. And the other is if one family member wins, then they can actually bring 
their immediate family into the U.S. If someone's granted asylum, what type of status does that give them? Do they get a green card or something else? Is it just temporary? Could it be taken away? It should not be temporary. I mean, it can be if if you commit a crime, I, I imagine. But if you win asylum for your first year, you're just here legally as an asylum grantee, asylee. After one year, you can apply for a green card. And then after five years, you can apply for citizenship. So it's what we call a, a pathway to permanence, right? Like if you win asylum, you can stay. There are other, there's something called withholding of removal that if you win it, it's not permanent. You can stay here. You can actually get a work permit, but you will never become a resident. You will never become a citizen. And if you ever leave the country, you'll lose your status. With asylum, once you get asylum and once you've been here a year and you get residence, you can ask for permission to travel. You get a work permit immediately. You can start working immediately. So there's very different benefits that you get from winning asylum as opposed to some other types of immigration relief. Are there any other major misconceptions about asylum seekers that we should know as people who maybe for the first time are being introduced to this very complex issue? I would say certainly there's people that are going to game the system, but I would say of the vast majority of the people that I meet here are legitimately here because they're afraid to return to their country of origin. And so it's it's easy to think that people are coming here for jobs and coming here for all sorts of other reasons. But I think when we can go back and think this person just left everything with the possibility of never going back and is subjecting themselves, often in the cases of the people I represent, to six, nine, 12 months in a, in a jail-like situation, the vast majority of them really are fleeing a situation that they can't live in in their home. So I think if we could just flip it, sometimes it feels like this, the common sense is that the vast majority actually are here just trying to get jobs and sneak in. And I think there are people that do that. But in my experience, the vast majority are people legitimately asking for asylum. And the number that are, are trying to trick the system are the minority. And of course, we want a world where people don't have to leave home and come here and ask for protection. So I think that's also where we need to start looking. Well, thank you so much, Heidi, for taking time and sharing your expertise with us about asylum seekers. Where can people learn more about you and or Las Americas Immigrant Advocacy Center? For sure, you can go on our website. I know there's also Twitter and other things that we do that I don't, but you can go on the website for Las Americas Immigrant Advocacy Center, and you can see the different areas that we work in, some of who our local partners are. Another organization that I think does a great job just of giving analysis and information here at the border is called Hope Border Institute. And they work more from the policy side. So they have all sorts of one page, one sheeters that explain like, what is asylum? What is remain in Mexico? And explain in a simple graphic way, what are all these things that are going on here at our border? And, and help us understand them better. Excellent. Thank you again. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Immigration. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing with family or friends and leaving a rating or review so more people can learn about this important issue. Have a great week, everyone, and let's keep talking immigration. Immigration.